What's really exciting to me about being here at the Hagley is the opportunity to look at so many um, different varieties of these models um, and to really get to, to, to see the range of, of what inventors might make to, to model their idea. From the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, this is Stories from the Stacks. I'm Amrys Williams. And I'm Ben Spoon. Each episode, we sit down with one of our visiting researchers and talk to them about what they're finding in our collections. I'm Reed Gotchberg, and I'm a lecturer in the History and Literature program at Harvard University. I work on 19th century American literature in relation to the history of science, material culture, and the history of collecting. Um, here at the Hagley, I've been doing research for a chapter of my book project that deals with literary conversations about the patent models at the U.S. Patent Office Gallery in the mid-19th century. So as many people at the Hagley know, um, the, the patent models were here at the Hagley are um, a really amazing collection. So the Hagley has, you know, 5,000 of these, you know, many of which are the result of a recent um, collection. The patent models in the 19th century were um, required by inventors along with their applications. So they submitted a written specification, a drawing, and a model of the invention. What's really exciting to me about being here at the Hagley is the opportunity to look at so many um, different varieties of these models. Um, and to really get to, to, to see the range of, of what inventors might make to, to model their idea. I'm really interested in how the models were these kind of material representations of the new idea. Um, but what's been interesting to me in terms of actually getting to, to look at a lot of these models is to see um, just, just how, um, how widely they varied. Um, both in materials, you know, wood, brass, um, some textile included in the in the material composition. I've been really interested in um, to what extent um, when you look at the model, you're able to actually tell what the idea or the invention is that's being patented because a lot of these models, you know, one of my favorite ones that I've seen so far is a model of a, it's the invention is a lightning rod that attaches to the rain gutters of a house, but the model itself is actually, a house um, and it's painted really elaborately. It's red, the brick detail on the front, it has windows, it has these kind of gabled windows and actually like the lightning rod itself, you kind of have to look for it. But when I was reading over the patent document, that's actually kind of the point as well. So the, the invention is to find a way of attaching lightning rods to houses so that they don't, oh, I forget what the language is, but basically so that they don't kind of like mar the aesthetics of your house. So. Um, so the fact that you can't actually see the lightning rod when you look at this model is in some ways kind of expressing that idea, even though if you were to look at this model, you would sort of say that's, that's a house. So, um, so, so that kind of um, relationship between the invention and the model is something that I've been able to kind of look at in a lot more detail here. Um, would you mind going into a couple other examples of that? That's... Sure. Um, a lot of the, the patent models here are for improvements to inventions. So, you know, you might have um, Keith Mensinger, the, uh, the registrar, was, show, was telling me about one that has, um, it's, you know, a model of a keyboard, and but actually the thing being patented is the candle stand. So, you know, like the ways in which um, inventors and makers would create these models to 
um, to also have a kind of aesthetic appeal. Um, you know, they might paint them, they might often include their own names on the front for a kind of promotional or, or publicity value, um, you know, and, and really kind of add a level of aesthetic detail to make them appealing and kind of eye-catching as well. It's, I mean, it's really an amazing collection. And um, I think for me, the chance to, to see just such a huge range of, of these models um, for, you know, a lot for domestic um, imp um, machines. So a lot of washing machines, um, lanterns, as well as things like steam engines or locks. Um, there's, there's a patent model for India rubber. Um, that's a square of the rubber. There's also a model of, um, the result of a chemical process for, for bleaching wood pulp for paper. Um, and so for me to be able to see kind of the, the range of materials, the range of what these, these look like and how they would have appeared to 19th century visitors to the Patent Office Gallery has been really helpful. Right, so these were on display in, at the Patent Office in Washington? Yes, um, starting I think it's 1840. Um, the Patent Office Gallery was open to the public and they had a lot of these models on display. Um, the same building also housed the National Institute, which was the kind of precursor to the Smithsonian. Um, and during the Civil War, that building was also turned into a temporary hospital. So my entry point into thinking about this collection was Walt Whitman's sketch of the Patent Office Hospital from 1863, in which he describes this gallery being turned into a temporary hospital and in between the cases of model machines were, were wounded Civil War soldiers. Um, and he calls it, you know, a curious scene. You know, he talks about sort of the, the visual impression of the, the juxtaposition of, of these models and the wounded soldiers during this period. And I started thinking about sort of what is the longer history of this particular place? Um, what, what, what was this gallery prior to the Civil War? And that got me into learning much more about these models and the ways in which they were, you know, kind of part of the patent process and meant to materially represent ideas. Um, it led me to Emerson's essays, um, such as Quotation and Originality and Works and Days, in which he's evoking collections of model machines in order to think about literary originality and relation to technological novelty. Um, and it led me to think about these kind of wider cultural conversations that were um, arising from the patent system during this period. What, what brings you to uh, examining these patent models as sort of like your primary source? Well, so for at this point in my research, um, you know, I defended my dissertation a little over a year ago and I'm working on revisions for, for the book project. And, you know, at this point I've had the chance, I've seen some patent models before at the Smithsonian, um, but I've worked a lot with essays, with newspaper accounts, um, with guidebooks um, that were printed during the 1850s. But um, this past week has given me the chance to kind of really think in detail about the material history of the models and to kind of fill out um, that dimension of, of the chapter that I'm working on for this project. Mm -hmm. And this, this chapter is part, I should say, of a larger book project about literary um, responses to the formation of scientific museums and collections, um, basically from the late 18th century through um, the end of the 19th century. Okay. So from cabinets to natural history museums to museums like the Patent Office. Would 
normal citizens have gone to see the galleries? Well, so during the 1840s and 1850s, you know, Washington, D.C., of course, became a kind of bigger tourist destination. Um, There are accounts of visits to the Patent Office and travel narratives by Charles Dickens, Anthony Trollope, um, Francis Trollope, um, as well as accounts in newspapers. And so I think the combination of the patent models and its you know, proximity within the same building as the National Institute, which had a lot of um, kind of artifacts of American history. So Washington's tent from the American Revolution that housed the Declaration of Independence at that point. Um, and the, the artifacts and specimens that were brought back from the U.S. exploring expedition in the early 1840s, that also drew in um, many tourists. And so, um, yeah, to answer your question, like, yes. There would have been many visitors to this to this gallery and sort of like the size of Hagley's collection of patent models is especially noteworthy absolutely um so you know one one challenge about looking at um, the 1840s and 1850s is that the patent office actually had a fire in the 1870s that destroyed many of the patent models from that earlier period um, but the Hagley's collection still includes you know, a number of models that were saved in the fire in the 1870s, as well as some from the later period. Um, And I think just the scale of the collection and um, 5,000 models, that's, you know, quite a number to get a sense of the range of what these look like, I think has been really helpful as opposed to only having, you know, 10 to look at, you know, I've been able to see the range, the, the quantity of different variations for something like a washing machine or a lock, you know, so... And just to sort of place myself in time a little bit better, um, from when to when did the patent office ask for models, require models? So they required them from 1836 through 1880, but prior to 1836, many inventors were already submitting models. um, And yeah, and I think that some continued as well after 1880, but that was kind of the, the main period. Interesting that they did it, you know, before they had to. Well, um, starting in the, there are some models, not patent models, but just model machines at the American Philosophical Society that I've had a chance to take a look at that are from the 1790s. So I think that if you were, you know, trying to show how a particular machine worked or you just wanted to, yeah, create this kind of material representation of it, like, then you might submit it along with your patent in order to kind of greatly clarify it. But my, my, focus has been on that on that later period because that's also when the when the gallery was was opened earlier you'd said that the majority of the models are for inventions that had like domestic uses a lot lot. yeah a plurality yes that's a good word and within that are they mostly for laundry for there's lawn um for laundry for cooking um there's there's a model of a pie crimper there's a big range from, you know, the kitchen, like, appliance that we think of, you know, a stove, refrigeration, you know, laundry to objects like a pie crimper, a cake pan. Yeah. So it really does run. It can be anything. So the, well, the criteria for getting a patent was that it had to be novel and, and the novelty and utility, right? So it had to be something new. So part of the, part of the patent specification and the patent documents will actually specify what exactly about this invention is new. And it could be something like a hinge 
or a bolt in, you know, in a way of kind of improving the functioning of a machine as well as, you know, an, a full machine itself. Um, one sort of standard question that I ask everybody who's in the stacks, um, I don't know how well it will apply here, is, is there anything that you found that um, might not be immediately useful to what you're working on, but just sort of sticks in your mind as like, that was... That was interesting. You know, it's a shame it's not necessarily related. One thing I've been interested in for a while now that I haven't yet had the chance to kind of think about in greater detail is this idea of everyday inventions and these, you know, especially domestic related. And so seeing this many models for things like washing machines or appliance or stoves and, and, and the number of models for for objects that might be used on an everyday basis was really fascinating to me and something that I might be interested in exploring further at some point. Um, but yeah, it's definitely given me a more, like even more of an entry point into that particular topic. Maybe this is a slightly silly question about the models, but when you talked about the materials that they were made out of, are they often uh, made out of the same materials that the final product would be? You know, like a plastic model of a car versus, you know, the actual metal car? I think it varies. One example that comes to mind is um, a model of a reclining chair that looks like a miniature rocking chair. You know, it has a polished kind of dark wood frame and it has this orange velvet upholstery. And so it's kind of immediately recognizable what what this is a model of. And like, you can kind of imagine a larger scale version of that with similar materials. Um, but others, I think that there would be some that are made with materials that are um, not necessarily the ones that they would have been ultimately constructed out of. I should also say that there's a range in terms of the scale of these mm. models too, that you, you might have this miniature rocking chair next to say like a stove model and the rocking chair is, you know, three times bigger. You couldn't send a whole stove to the patent office, but I'd imagine you could probably send like the pie crimper at full size. Yeah, or close to full size. Yeah. And so that, you know, that's also interesting to see, you know, especially the, the juxtaposition of these like different scales of, of models. So there was no uniform scale was just send us this thing. Yeah, send the model and um I think I'm not sure if there was an explicit um, like size requirement or parameters, I think custom was that it was sort of 18 inches by 18 inch cube. Um, and so, but there are some that are larger than that and some that are obviously smaller. So I think there, that kind of variation definitely occurred. I'm really excited about the chance to continue expanding my work on on this chapter and on this dimension of my project um, to really build out my discussion of the models themselves and to be able to talk about a lot of different examples of them that I've seen here at the Hagley. So whether it's the lightning rod or a stove or, you know, a, a house, a fire alarm, house alarm that was designed by Rufus Porter um, who was the editor of Scientific American during this time. Um, I feel like I've gotten to see a bunch of really interesting examples of different types of models. And I think that I'm going to be able to talk a lot more about um, their material construction, as well as from my experience being down in, 
in the vaults of the Hall of Records where they're all stored together and being able to see them kind of on the shelves next to each other, just having that that visual sense of what it might have been like to see all of these models together in the 1840s or 1850s has been really helpful. To learn more about Hagley's grants and fellowships and search our collections, visit hagley.org research. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot org. To listen to more Stories from the Stacks, you can find us at hagley.org slash storiesfromthestacks, all one word, or simply subscribe to our feed on iTunes or SoundCloud. Be sure to stay tuned for our new podcast, The Mill Race, launching in July 2018.